and welcome to the Mariner's Library, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is part 16 of the reading, and it's chapter 17. Now if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, and there for $5 a month you can not only support this podcast, but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon-only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 17. New York at Last Keeping a sharp lookout, we tore in through the narrow, rock-strewn channel which leads to Quamcasset. As we rounded the corner, the point of land which had hidden our friends blanketed the wind, and we slowed down to a less headlong pace. At last, we could look around, and we found ourselves in another of the Earth's more heavenly havens. Surrounding the lightly rippled sheet of water which stretched ahead of us for about a quarter of a mile and a few hundred feet across were gently sloping hills, clothed with beautiful trees of all kinds. Beneath the lengthening shadows of the trees, emerald green lawns glowed coolly in the slanting rays of the setting sun. About a dozen large and very beautiful houses set in the midst of the woods and surrounded by well-tended flower gardens began to show yellow lights through uncurtained windows, uncurtained because no one could wish to shut out such a scene while sitting down to dinner. Pleasant little sandy beaches fringed the borders of the inlet, and here and there boat-minded owners of property had erected landing stages. At the further end of the reach we were following was a fleet of about thirty yachts, varying in size from small half-decked sailing craft to vessels thirty or forty tons. As we tacked back and forth across the narrowing stream, our friends of the priority ran back to meet us and escorted us up the somewhat tricky channel to the anchorage. As the sun dropped below the hills, the wind died quickly to a very light air, and we could hear from all sides the domestic sounds of Americans at home, the happy laughter of girls ringing clear and pleasant to our ears, the tiny clatter of dishes from tables set in the gardens, voices of men talking over the innumerable topics of the day or reminiscing over hunting or fishing trips, the merry chatter of children who should have been in bed at such an hour. Quamcasset was certainly a place for peaceful family holidays, we thought. We gradually wended our way into the midst of the fleet of yachts, brought down our mainsail as we luffed up into the wind within thirty feet of a lovely little shelf of sandy beach, then dropped the anchor with a splash. At that precise moment we almost jumped overboard as a terrific explosion crashed in our ears. We looked up and saw a pall of blue smoke drifting away from one of the larger sailing boats. No shrieks of agony followed, so we assumed that all was well, and carried on stowing the sails and tidying up ship. A few minutes later we saw about a dozen dinghies loaded with people heading for us from all directions. We slunk into the cabin, lit the lamp, and prepared to cook a meal. But Americans are not to be cheated by such feeble artifices. A cheery voice called in, Ahoy there, you limeys! We've come to fetch you aboard our ship for a real slap-up dinner. Encouraged by this delightfully generous way of framing their invitation to two people they had not even seen yet, we climbed out into the cockpit to greet our new friend. A tall, dark figure stretched out a hand with the unmistakable iron grip of a lifelong sailing man. I'm Irving Lunt, and this is my wife. 
We shook hands with our would-be hostess. And these are my two daughters, Catherine and Jerry. Two little figures bobbed up from the dinghy and we shook hands again. At this juncture, our friends of the priority came alongside. They seemed a little disappointed as they had only just finished stowing their cells and had intended to invite us on board priority. This was a bit of a problem. We were most anxious to avoid hurting anyone's feelings, but after a little friendly argument between the two groups, it was arranged that we should dine with Irving and his family. When we got aboard the Entre Nous, we were dazzled by the splendours around us. Everything was spick and span, clean, neat and immediately accessible. It was evident that our friends were intensely proud of their ship, and from what we could see, they had every reason to be. Compared with our tiny cabin, this was like a cathedral in its vast floor areas and lofty airiness. In the saloon, when the table was folded, it was possible to walk three or four paces, bolts upright. There were other cabins too, a fine forecastle with two bunks for the children, a galley and a pantry, and most incredible of all, a toilet with a real wash basin. Of course, all these things are perfectly normal for a boat of 12 tons, but it was so long since we had been on board another ship that we felt like two savages introduced for the first time to the conveniences of civilization. Upon the table spread before us, complete with snow-white cloth, lay highly polished glassware and cutlery glinting under the bright glow of the lights, electric lights, gleaming china, cups, saucers and plates with a pleasant colourful design were assigned to each individual. All this was new to us after almost four months of making do with the minimum trappings of civilised food taking. Now came the greatest thrill of all. Steaming dishes were handed in from the galley, potatoes, fresh greens, onions and beautifully cooked steaks. Like voracious gannets we swept the table bare and our hosts seemed delighted at our squalid exhibition of greed. All right, now we fed you, you hogs, we guiltily read in the expectant eyes of our hosts. Talk. Irving brought out bottles and glasses and handed us a box of cigars. Then, with their kindly eyes beaming on us, we settled ourselves comfortably and proceeded to make our excuses for bringing the jaded little Nova Espero across the wide Atlantic. We assumed an air of typical British reserve, and with a thin cloak of modesty to help cover up the shortcomings of our tale, proceeded to spin the yarn. We soon petered out, however, for our experiences were too close astern of us to be clearly remembered in detail. We now began to turn to our hosts for conversation. They told us first how the priority came sailing into the peace of Quamcasset, rushing in amongst the anchored craft and pointing to the harbour entrance, where the Nova could be seen as a small white object with a few coloured triangles of sail curving above her. That little boat has just crossed from Britain, they shouted. Everyone looked, then let out peals of laughter. What, that little pink thing? Someone bawled. We were shocked when we heard of this disrespect for the beautiful colour of our sails. It seems that our friends had some difficulty establishing the truth of their announcement, but some had heard about a small boat reported missing, so they passed the word that there might be something in it after all. As the schooner turned downstream towards the pink object to escort it into the anchorage, Irving cast around in his mind for some way to mark the occasion. Then he hit on the idea of a salute. In a locker down below he had, of all things, a bronze yacht club cannon. He brought it out and feverishly charged it and set it ready on the deck to fire, 
when we dropped the hook, so the nerve-shattering explosion we had heard as we made contact was a salute in our honour. We thought this very gracious, though typical of a seaman, and our talk with Irving and our study of his ship indeed proved him to be so. The following morning, we awoke as the high sun beamed down into our eyes. With a pleasant thrill of excitement, we remembered where we were anchored and leisurely washed and dressed and climbed out to survey the scene. How we wished we could feel free to go ashore to walk under the trees, among the flowers, to stroll round the small yacht club yard and go into the village shops, but no, we were determined to land only at New York. Our friends on board the Priority waved to us, then one of them came over in the dinghy to tell us that there was an enormous breakfast waiting. We scrambled into the dinghy, and again we received a pleasant surprise at the comparative spaciousness of a bigger boat. We shook hands with our four friends, two married couples, and then we sat down in the large cockpit and had heaped platefuls of eggs, bacon, potatoes and lettuce with several cups of coffee. We chatted merrily together while various yachting folk rode alongside, and soon Priority had more than a dozen people on the deck. A large fleet of dinghies was tied alongside in bunches with drifting crowds all round talking, shouting and laughing as if at a cocktail party. Before we knew it, lunchtime had arrived and our kind hosts insisted that we stay for clam chowder, salad and fruit. Late in the afternoon we returned to the Nova Espro to sail down the string of islands to Cuttyhunk in company with Priority again. As we approached the Nova, the gathering of dinghies which hid her from view disappeared to make way for us. We went on board and upon looking into the cockpit were astonished to see a great heap of parcels and paper bags filled with all kinds of provisions. Bottles and cans of beer were rolling back and forth on the side decks between the two combings. We looked inquiringly at the faces around us, but could detect only a twinkle of conspiratorial amusement. We grinned sheepishly, and summoned up enough nerve to render an audible thank you. We only hope our appreciation could be seen in our eyes. We carried a fine free wind along the islands to Cuttyhunk, this time keeping close up by the priority all the way, which pleased us immensely. Our entry into the long, narrow pass to the harbour was somewhat marred by both boats running aground. We soon got off on the rising tide, however, and anchored among the gathering of yachts in the main basin. This was heaven to us, running into a pleasant harbour every day or two. Early the following morning, we looked around with great interest at the fleet of yachts around us. American designers and builders of sailing vessels have a good eye for sheer line and shape, and there is a noticeable preference for schooners which always have a hint of romance about them. We thought Cuttyhunk less secluded than Quamcasset. We got under way again soon after breakfast, and as we sailed out through the entrance, we saw why we were caught the night before. A long stretch of the southern bank had been broken down by the seas and had been washed half away across the channel. We parted company with priority outside and watched her sail northward at a tangent to our course, until she disappeared over the horizon. The wind increased as we passed Block Island at midnight, so we decided to carry on into Long Island Sound. Charles had quite a thrill passing through Fisher's Island Gut with a very strong tidal race chasing us through. The short, confused sea danced the boat about like a pea in a whistle, and pandemonium was let loose in the cabin with everything unshipped and falling into the bilge. Stanley slept. 
At 6pm on the 4th of September, we anchored in Duck Island Harbour, peaceful and isolated, until several young lads on vacation came roaring out to us in a noisy little speedboat, curious about the deep-sea appearance of the Nova Espero. We arrived at Guildford at sundown after a rather long, drawn-out battle against the ebb with a failing wind. This is a very beautiful little reach and was quiet and unspoilt. The only sound we could hear was the gentle whisper of the night breeze in the tall sedge grasses stretching away on all sides of our peaceful anchorage. We could have imagined ourselves in a remote part of the Norfolk Broads. The following day, the 6th of September, we set sail about 9am. The south by easterly wind outside the harbour was blowing quite strong, which made our departure very difficult, as the entrance to this little place is barred by several scattered reefs of rocks and shoals. We were compelled to tack in one of the narrowest parts of the channel, and just as we were coming round on the tenth short leg and had begun to feel we could relax, we struck bottom. In a moment we were almost deafened by the vicious fluttering of the sails, so we lowered the main and tried to pole the bow round. With the greatest difficulty we brought her onto the other tack, and we were about to hoist the main again when a fishing launch came speeding up to us. A great, powerful-looking chap hailed us, offering to tow us out clear of the narrow channel. We thanked him and said we could manage all right. He apparently guessed we were worrying about paying and forestalled us by telling us most emphatically that there would be no charge. We could see by his face that he was only anxious to help, so we waved him in. As he was bearing down on us, his engine stalled and he came drifting helplessly towards the bank. Charles just managed to grab his stem and save him from going aground just as the engine started into life again. The next few minutes were quite hilarious. We think our friend had the gears in astern, so when the engine exerted its influence, it was to take the boat towards the bank. Charles didn't have a chance to realise that he was trying to restrain 50 US brake horses. There was a loud crack and the faithful little mizzenmast against which he had been bracing himself went flying downwind. Charles, following, still clinging to the stem of the launch, his lower sections trailing in the water. Stanley watched from the bow of the Nova in stupefied amazement, then burst into unjust laughter as he saw the look of astonishment on the face of the owner of the launch when he bobbed up from the engine hatch to see the bearded head of Charles appearing over the bow of his boat and the Nova Espero more than a boat's length away. Charles was returned to his ship, a line was passed, and ten minutes later we were in the clear. When we had made the point to the west of Guildford, we set course for the next outlying point a few miles further along the sound. The wind was freshening and pushed up a wicked little wet sea. We tore along with a reefed mainsail and foresail. Almost continuous sheets of spray, tossed high in the air by the bow, swept back and splashed at our faces. The fact that the mizzen had gone made us feel less complacent about the shoreline under our lee, and we wanted to get into harbour before nightfall, in case the wind really got angry. We studied the chart for a promising harbour and decided to make Milford, a few miles further along the coast. We came abreast of the little town but could see no sign of a harbour until close in. Then we saw a number of boys and unusually permanent-looking stone beacons marking the channel. We swept in, in grand style, with a strong wind dead astern. Inside, the little creek was crowded with yachts. We roared up through most of them to where we thought things might be quieter, then dropped the hook among a fleet of smaller craft, 
on the recommendation of a local yachting man who had sailed out to meet us. Howard Esty, a very old friend of Charles, had heard of our arrival at Milford, and he and his wife jumped into their car, and bringing a bottle of white horse with which to celebrate the occasion, roared pell-mell along the 50-mile coast road from their home in Saybrook. They brought news of a terrible tragedy which had happened on this day off Montauk Point at the other end of Long Island. Forty people lost their lives when a fishing vessel overturned. In spite of this bad news, it was good to see Howard and Elizabeth. We later went to stay with them and had a wonderful time. The following day was a flat calm, but we got further along the Sound to Southport, a beautiful little port with a rather unusual entrance of rocks on one side and a long, thick harbour wall, far bigger than one would have thought a town of this size could possibly afford. We arrived at Southport at 3.30pm and met a fleet of sleek racing craft creeping out of the entrance to compete in one of the club races. Southport is graced by a very fine yacht club building and teams with some of the keenest sailing folk we have ever met. They even have a large annex building for the junior members to run for themselves. The Commodore invited us in to enjoy the hospitality of the club, but we had to refuse as we had to sail on for New York next day. The following morning was Sunday. It seems that Southport children are not sent out for Sunday walks as elsewhere, but don their best clothes for Sunday boating. At any rate, we soon became the mecca for children and had an extremely happy morning. One little shining gentleman of about twelve brought his ten-year-old girlfriend out to see us. The little girl was dressed in a most bewitching little frock, crowned by a light, wide-brimmed hat, adorned with sprigs of flowers and a tiny, artful scrap of lace. The little girl, with poise enough for two duchesses, looked us over, apparently disliked our grubby-looking roll-neck sweaters, our unshaven chins, our bare feet and our very long matted hair, and gave her bow the signal to row on. We got under way at noon, enticed out into the sound by the promise of a breeze. Soon after, however, the wind left us drifting at the mercy of the tide, rolling in the wake waves of an endless procession of powered yachts, making their way to and from the innumerable delightful little ports along the sound. We soon saw that we could do no good, and crept into the land again to anchor in a quiet refuge till the wind showed signs of cooperating. Our harbour this time was a very peaceful inlet, just to the eastward of Norwalk Island. We had another unbroken night of rest, and got under way early the following morning. The wind was dead ahead, and light at that. The only thing we could do was to make for lonely Lloyd's Neck Harbour, arriving at midnight. The last leg of our voyage from Lloyd's Harbour was made during the following day, the 11th of September. After a wearying day struggling against a strong headwind under a grey, gloomy sky, we neared our destination, City Island, New York. We hoisted the big red ensign, the quarantine flag in the stays, consisting of one of the yellow rubberized water-converting bags cut into a square, our Dartmouth Sailing Club burgee, and last, but by no means least, an enormous American stars and stripes at the masthead. The Nova must have looked top-heavy with flags, for both the ensign and the stars and stripes were many sizes too large for her, but fog had closed in. So, in the end, no one saw us, and thus our voyage ended. Well, that's the end of the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. 
I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed reading it to you. Our next book is by the famous offshore solo sailor, Sir Francis Chichester, and it's called The Romantic Challenge, one of his lesser known titles, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Triamaran Spirit sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Well, that's all for today from the Mariner's Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.